It's a very good effort. Always a hard, a hard hymn to, to sing in various parts, going various places. Johanna, thanks for playing it. Uh, again, good to have Johanna and uh, Liz and Carlin back again from the road trip. Uh, thank Johanna for playing that today. Uh, a very short, uh, short notice. Uh, challenge was the other tune we sing it to. We sang for the second hymn, and so I thought we can't sing the same tune twice in a in a row. So good to sing that hymn, and may God be pleased to accept our praise uh, for Christ's sake again today. Well, let's turn again in the Word of God back to First Kings nineteen. First uh, Kings chapter nineteen. We're looking at the section from verse number 11 through to 18 today. Just read the opening part of verse 11, then we'll seek God's face together. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Let's bow together, please. Let's look to the Lord again for his help as we come to his word today. Eternal God and Father, we come humbly before Thee again. We recognize Thou art a God worthy of our praise and all of our adoration. And we don't have the words to express how great and glorious Thou art as our God. And so we come before Your Word, realizing, O Lord, that our praise toward Thee is, is based upon how You revealed Yourself in the Word. Help us to understand Your ways more clearly in this passage. And though we be far removed from it in time and in place, yet, O oh God, this word is relevant to our hearts today. Help us to draw those lines, straight lines, from the passage to your own experience. That, your Father, we would not simply understand the passage better, but know your will for us in light of it. Give us help to this end. Help those who are listening to do so with, again, grace and determination. Give grace, O Lord, in the hearing of the word and in the preaching of it. Help us, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, let me remind you that we're considering Elijah here in this passage in his role as God's litigator. He is the one, in a legal sense, who is bringing charges against the Lord's people. I say that for various reasons. I've given some already. But I remind you again that the angel comes and feeds Elijah because the journey is too great for him. Again, there are some and they're determined to see Elijah in a negative light here. And they will say the food that was given was so Elijah could go back to Ahab and Jezebel. But the text doesn't say that. The text clearly says, He arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights, unto Horeb, the mount of God. And there's no indication that he's going in the wrong direction. In fact, as we're going to see here, when he brings judgment against the Lord's people, the Lord himself agrees with Elijah's judgment. Elijah is here bringing words of truth against the people of God. There's also another factor here. I want you to turn across, please, to Romans 11. Now would be a good time. You could put a marker in Romans 9 through 11. We'll be there this afternoon. But in Romans 11, there's another reference here to Elijah. And there's a reference that is, again, directly using this passage. Paul is dealing with the issue of Jewish rejection of the gospel. And the question is, hath God cast away his people? 
Again, there's this issue. Paul's dealing with Romans 9 through 11. The gospel has come, but generally the people of God, the Israelites, have rejected their Messiah. Gentiles have believed, but the Jews have generally rejected the Lord's Christ. And so the question is, hath God forsaken his covenant? Hath he cast away his people? And Paul says, God forbid, and he used himself as proof, for I also am an Israelite. But then look at verse number 2. What, or know ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias, Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying. And so in, in no sense should we see Elijah as a grumbling, complaining, self-centered prophet. Rather, he is one who is in prayer bringing uh, bringing judgment against the people of God. Verse 3, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. He uses that as evidence of the judgment of the people of God against the Lord himself. What saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. We'll come back to that at the end today and also this afternoon. It's going to be a very important feature of God's word in our consideration through today. But for now, simply again note those words, Elijah maketh intercession to God against Israel. What a fearful thing. For a man of God of the nature and the dignity of Elijah to stand before his God and bring these words of judgment against the Lord's people. They have forsaken thy covenant. It demonstrates to us again the nature of true covenant religion. To forsake the covenant we would often think is to disobey the commands of God. You've got Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and they, they detail those, that language so clearly. If you disobey my word, then you're breaking my covenant. But it's much more than that. We saw last time that to forsake the covenant is not just to disobey the commands of God. It is to forsake the Lord himself. And so in covenant religion, covenant religion is not only walking in obedience It is walking in communion with God. Personal, spiritual communion. And there are some in the professed church and they are content that they don't break God's commandments as they see. But they have no fellowship with God. They do nothing of communion with God in prayer and in the word of God. You see, when God enters covenant, when he comes and promises of grace to his people, it is that we would by grace commune with him. The affection, the devotion of God's people must be to God and to God alone. Now, we may have other things that we have to attend to and watch over. There are legitimate responsibilities in this life, but even those come under the authority of God. God alone is first in our lives. And so family life or occupations or civil life, those things come under the authority of God. God comes first. And we are Christian husbands and Christian fathers and Christian wives and Christian children and Christian employees, whatever the case may be. But we are God's people first and foremost, and Jehovah 
in Christ must be our supreme affection. That is still God's purpose and covenant. And I tried to make it clear last time that we are not Israel in this passage. There's a difference. The new covenant in Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, is not according to the covenant that was broken in the old covenant. Different. Oh yes, there's a unity, an organic unity, but there are distinctions. And the Spirit of God ensures that all those who are in the new covenant will not break and forsake the covenant. We understand that. But we are still living in covenant. God has come in new covenants secured by Christ's blood, and His will in that covenant is that we'd walk with God. And there are those warnings in the New Testament that warn us about forsaking the Lord. Again, I, I do have concerns that we are too casual in our walk with God. That we see a passage like this and we say, well, we're, we're New Testament, New Covenant Christians. This is the Old Testament. This is, this is the, the wrathful God of the Old Covenant. What we saw in Hebrews 10 last time, that writing to a New Covenant church, Paul says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a serious thing to be a Christian. Christ tells those considering following him to take up their cross but to do so counting the cost of that, recognizing that in our lives. And so the New Testament does contain warnings against apostasy and backsliding, these things that are really mimics of this situation. What happens when we backslide and fall away from the Lord? Well, it begins with a coldness in our communion. We're not burdened about being in the Lord's presence. We, we We can pray or not pray. We can take it or leave. It doesn't really care doesn't concern us, and we become casual, and we cast adrift our allegiance to the house of God and the public worship of God's name. Go back, Hebrews 10, you'll see it again there. We forsake the assembling ourselves together, and that is part and parcel of what it is to begin to turn away from the Lord. Everything and anything else becomes more important than our devotion to Christ Jesus. And if that's not in your heart today, praise God for that. Because that remaining tendency, that remaining sin, is so quickly upon us. The things that we see are of first importance. And the unseen things of God become secondary in our lives. This passage presents to us again the seriousness of departing from the Lord. Elijah, God's servant, is coming and he's saying, here's the charges. Here's the issue. They have forsaken thy covenant. They've despised the worship of God on the altars and the word of God in the prophets. And the Lord has invited Elijah to speak. What doest thou hear, Elijah? Verse number 9. Now how will the Lord respond to Elijah's first charges? So verse number 10, we have the first account of Elijah bringing these charges. I've been very jealous, but the people of God have forsaken thy covenant. I I said last time that we see uh, uh, going backward and forward between Elijah and the Lord in this passage. Elijah says, God responds, Elijah responds, and God responds. And so we've got to take up there and see, well, where do we go with this? Well, first of all, please note today, God reveals himself to Elijah. There is this in verse 11 and following, a very particular revealing of God to Elijah. 
There's a recounting of the power of God demonstrated. Note, note, note what it says, verse number 11. And behold, the Lord passed by. Okay, just in case you're wondering, when it says the Lord is not in the wind or in the earthquake, that does not mean that the Lord is not the author of the wind and the earthquake. The Lord passes by and demonstrates his power in those things. But he chooses a still small voice to then speak to Elijah. You see, the Lord is at times in these things. It says in our reference, the Lord is not in the wind. But Nahum chapter, Nahum verse number 3 says, the Lord hath his way in the whirlwind. Job 38 verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So at times God does speak and reveal himself in the wind. It's also true in the earthquake. Psalm 68 verse 8, the earth shook. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. So at times God is in the wind. At times God is in the earthquake. At times God is in the fire. Again, Exodus chapter 19 Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. So, when it says that God is not in these things, it is not suggesting that God is not the author and the originator of these signs, but that God in his kindness is dealing in a very particular way with Elijah at this time. It's a unique individual dealing with his needs coming with, if you like, a new revelation to Elijah. The Lord always deals with us according to your needs. He knoweth our frame. That's true of Elijah. It's true of you. If you think God doesn't deal with you individually, then you have a very harsh view of God. He knows you. He's the shepherd that knows exactly the needs of the individual sheep. And he comes to Elijah at this time, in this place, in this way. Other times... He comes in the earthquake, in the fire, and in the wind. But here he comes to Elijah with a still, small voice. I want to look particularly, please, at the details of this revelation. Again, you'll see in your outline there, in the bulletin, you have the details, and then the significance. And the details, they, they do, they lead us to the significance of this passage. These details, the place. I'm not going back over Horeb. Did that last time. The significance of Horeb as the place. But note beyond Horeb, you find the place is the mount, verse 11. Go forth and stand upon the mount. You also see in verse number 13 that Elijah stands in the entering in of the cave. The mount and the cave on Horeb. Then note secondly the passing by in the details here. Verse 11, and behold, the Lord passed by. He manifests his power as he passes by and then comes with his presence and speaks to Elijah in the still small voice. That leads again to the presence of God. It's in the voice. Now, please note, it says there in verse 12, and after the fire, a still small voice. That voice is also mentioned in verse number 13. And behold, there came a voice unto him. The presence of God comes in the word. The word that's used here for voice in verse 12 and 13 is also used in verse number 9. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. 
the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the presence of God in his word. Now keep those things in mind, the place, the passing by, and the presence of God. And now please turn back to Exodus chapter 33. Now you may already in your mind have gone back here because we made the point last time that Horeb is significant here. Elijah is not going to Horeb at a whim. He's going there under the direction of God and by the power of God in the food that comes from God. He's at Horeb because God wants him there. He's not at Horeb because he should be somewhere else. He's at Horeb in the will of God. And we saw last time that Horeb is again mentioned, Exodus chapter 33 in the verse number 6, and the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. It's the sin of the calf. And again, the, the wickedness of the people of God in seeking to worship the, the golden calf. At Horeb, the Mount of God. But when God comes and makes himself known to Moses at the Mount, look what it says in verse number 2 of chapter 34. And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. Here you go. Elijah on the mount. Moses on the mount. Furthermore, look at verse number 30, or verse 18 of chapter 33. Moses says, And I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And then on the way down through, verse number 22, And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I'll put thee in a cliff of the rock. He's on the mount, in a cave-like structure, physically, if you like, being protected as God passes by. Horeb, the mount, and the cave. And then look at chapter 34, verse number 6. Note the verb used, And the Lord passed by. Here again, we're seeing these similarities. The place, the passing by, and then, not surprisingly, the presence of God. How, again, in the Word. The Lord passed by and proclaimed. What is Moses' response? Verse 8, And Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. What was Elijah's response? He took his mantle and covered his face. He knows he's been in the presence of God. These are very, very clear parallels. In Exodus chapter 33 and 34, we have the covenant being broken as the people give themselves to idolatry in the times of Aaron. And that covenant is then renewed in God's grace in chapter 34. Verse 10, Behold, I make a covenant. And it seems clear to me that a careful reader of the Word of God is being encouraged by this passage to see God's dealing with Elijah as being parallel with his dealings with Moses. That's what leads to the significance of this. If we're seeing this as parallel, then we get an insight into what God is doing as he reveals himself to Elijah in the still, small voice. It is a revelation, again, of God's character. If you're still in Exodus chapter 34, you will see what happens in verse 6. The Lord proclaims, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. When God passes by Moses, he reveals his character. And I am convinced that a similar revelation of the character of God occurs in Elijah's case. That actually moves Elijah to bring the charges a second time and to pray again against the people of God in light of the character of God. Because what you see, and we'll see at the end, when it comes to Hazael and Jehu and Elisha, you're seeing a mixture of God's judgment and God's grace. The very thing we see in this passage, God comes in judgment and God comes in grace. His character is a God of justice and a God of mercy. Not in conflict, but in perfect harmony. And that revelation it encouraged Elijah to go the second time and to bring the charges against the people of God. You see, Elijah, in bringing his prayer to God, remember Romans 11? He's making an intercession against the people of God. In bringing his prayers to God, he must do so mindful of God's character. Your prayers, dear child of God today, must be governed by the character of God. Everything you utter from your mouth in prayer must be grounded upon how God reveals himself in his word. When we pray and we've not thought about who God is, the tendency is to pray in a careless fashion, to come without due reverence, to pray things that may not be according to God's will, it is a mindfulness of the character of God that governs our prayers. You think of situations and circumstances you may pray over. You may pray about those who are out of Christ. You may pray for God's justice to be shown towards those who are out of Christ. You see, we are very quick to use God's justice when it comes to your enemies. And plead God's mercy when it comes to our friends and family. We've got to make sure all of our prayers are governed by the character of God. And so, be very careful in our prayers that we do not pronounce what God should do. But rather come with an understanding of God's justice. That all those out of Christ, our enemies and our friends... Deserve nothing but God's wrath, but God is also in his sovereign will able to show mercy. And so we come in prayer in that regard. Lord, judge sin, show mercy according to your will, and we submit ourselves to your character in the place of prayer. And so we see in this a revelation of God's character. We also see a revelation of God's means of communicating. As a preacher, you read verse number 12, the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. And it's one of those things, if you're not careful, you think, well, that's a text to preach. You know, if you're a young person and you're thinking of preaching, take that text very, very carefully. You presume it'll preach easily. I guarantee you it will not preach easily if you've been faithful to the text. Because it's very hard to know exactly what God is doing in this still, small voice. 
Why the still small voice? Is it proving that he's not like Baal? It's a word to Elijah that Carmel's in the past. God has shown his power in Carmel. He's shown that he's God. But ordinarily, he comes and speaks in his word. Is it a sense that Elijah's not to look for the dramatic? That he's, he's, he's living on this idea that God will do the dramatic and show himself in that regard. Rather, God's usual purpose is to show himself in his word. Remember again, voice, verse 12, verse 13, and verse number 9, the word word. All of these words are the same. God coming in his word. And I think that is a sense here. The words that are used here have a sense almost of God coming in a whisper. And I think that's how you get the sense of this. As creatures and sinful creatures at that, all we can bear is the whisper of God. And it comes in the word of God. When God comes in thunder, people flee from the presence of God. But when God comes in the kindness of his word, people are drawn to speak to God. That's the sense here, because what happens after the still small voice, Elijah hears it, and he goes into God's presence. And the Lord says, what doest thou hear, Elijah? Young people, I encourage you, be content in the ordinary in your Christian life. We live in a day and generation when churches are trying to do the next great thing. We were so entertainment-focused, entertainment-based. The church are trying to think, well, how can we show God in a dramatic fashion week upon week? I don't know how long they'll sustain it. But the more they try to sustain it, the, the tighter they'll get. And the more extreme they'll become. And the further they'll go from God's word. This past, this, this week, I look at this passage. And you're thinking, well, I've got to deal with it. But it's... It's just the next section in this story. I'd love to do something else. That's the carnality of a preacher at times. Because this is just God's word to your hearts today. And dear child of God, I encourage you, be content in the ordinary. Because that's all you can handle. The word of Christ and the word of God coming in that gentle fashion to your soul that stirs up your heart and draws you into God's presence. Live your lives daily thankful for God's still small voice in the Word. It is incredible. The eternal, the eternal Almighty God speaks to us in words that we can read, hear, and understand. What is the language of heaven? What is the language of God? Well, here we have it. In the translation of the Hebrew and the Greek, we have the word of God, the still small voice. You can read these words and understand these words because that's what God's will is for you. He communicates in his word. Thirdly, it is a revelation of God's continuing grace. You see, go back to Exodus chapter 34. The Lord coming to Moses was an indication of the Lord accepting Moses' prayer. Verse 9, Moses after... God passing by, he says, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. 
Now, the sense of the if in verse number 9 is not conditional. It's much more the sense of since I now have found grace in thy sight. The conditional sense is back in verse number 13 of chapter 33. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way. He shows him his way, and Moses understands that God has shown his way. Therefore, he is a recipient of God's grace and covenant. And God has not forsaken his people. And so the Lord appearing to Elijah is again confirmation that though the people have sinned, God has not forsaken his people. He's not cast them away. He's keeping his word. As he appears to Moses, he appears to Elijah, and it's a confirmation of what we'll see in verse number 18, 7,000 that have not bowed the knee unto Baal. God will not forsake his people. He's faithful. You know, this display of God's faithfulness leads us all the way to Messiah, to the coming of Christ. Exodus chapter 33, the people sin. 1 Kings 19, the people sin. And do you know what? After this, it doesn't get any better. It continues to get worse and worse and worse. So the Assyrians come and overthrow Israel. And the Babylonians come and they overthrow Judah. And the people of God continue to forsake the covenant until God comes with a still small voice to Jeremiah and says to Jeremiah, Behold, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that covenant will be sealed with Christ's blood. God appearing to Elijah is in a very real sense the reason you're here right now. Because of God's faithfulness. Covenant reliability. And he will not forsake his people. That's God revealing himself to Elijah. Secondly, and this is very brief, we'll see Elijah's response. That's verse, again, verse number 14. He comes and repeats the judgment. It's, it's like, and again, I want to be careful here. It's like he comes as a litigator and says to God, the judge, here are my charges. And God comes and says, well, here's my law. I'm a God of mercy, but a God who will visit iniquity. Here's my character. I reveal myself. Are you sure you want to present these charges? And he comes a second time and repeats the same words and brings charges against the people of God. You know, his repeating of these statements, having met with God, surely again demonstrates the rightness of these statements. If you have any question that, that Elijah's in the wrong here, the fact that they repeat it twice, having met with God, is to my mind absolute proof of the righteousness of the statements. Again, I don't want to run off. Their time is going very quickly. But when you meet with God, you're very careful what you say. When Isaiah meets with God, he recognizes I'm a, I'm a sinful man with unclean lips. Elijah has just met with God and he's able to bring the same words. There's definitely benefit and application here, isn't there? Whatever you say in life, if God comes by, could you repeat what you just said? You come once and you bring that word of slander or gossip and God comes by. 
Would you say it again? You see, Elijah, he's not guilty of slander here. He's speaking truth. You make some boastful mark about yourself. You say you've done this thing or that thing. And God comes by and you realize, no, I didn't. It's not the way I said it. But Elijah comes and he's not boasting here. He's being truthful. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. He doesn't need to take back his words. He knows he's in God's presence and yet he can still say the very same things. It'd be a good rule of thumb. Before you speak once, ask yourself, can you speak twice? And in between the first and the second words, if God is there, will you repeat what you just said? Or text? Or shared? Is it true? Is it really true? Is it necessary? Is it my place to say this thing or that thing? Is it my role? Is it helpful? Needful? Yeah, I think Elijah's guarded his mouth here. He's put a mantle across his face. He understands. He's in God's presence. His words count. And yet he's still able to come and bring the second charge against the Lord's people. Which leads thirdly to God's commission of Elijah. How does God respond to the charges that God's people are breaking the covenant Well, we learn how God responds in the words of verse 15. The Lord says to him, go. In the tasks and the commissioning here, we see from Exodus chapter 34, God's character manifested here because God comes and brings words of judgment and words of grace. The words of judgment come as three men are to be anointed. Two kings, one prophet, One king internal to the people of God and one king externally. Haziel is mentioned. Verse number 15, when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Over in 2 Kings chapter 8, you can see there, 2 Kings chapter 8, and the verse number 12, Elisha meets Haziel. Elijah weeps. Haziel says, Why weep with my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that I will do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dice their children, and rip up their women with child. Haziel will indeed bring down God's judicial judgment upon the people of God. He will chastise them for their backslidings and for their apostasy through the means of Haziel, Jehu. Well, that's over in 2 Kings 9. Jehu is also mentioned again in our passage, again mentioned several years before these things come to pass. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse number 7, And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master. He does so to Jehoram, verse 24. He smote Jehoram between his arms. He does so to Jezebel, verse number 33. Throw her down. So they threw her down. Chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, gives us the details of Jehu bringing judgment upon Ahab's sons. Verse 11, the summary. So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel and all his great men and his kinsfolks and his priests until he left none remaining. That's Second Kings chapter 10, verse 11. That takes us back, of course, to what it says there in verse number 16. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. 
And those that escape the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And Jehu is used to bring judgment upon the house of Ahab. God's name will be vindicated. His word will come true. Do you think for a second when God says he's appointed a day in which he will judge the word in righteousness by that man, that that word will not come true? Ahab and Jezebel lived through the life and ministry of Elijah without suffering the consequence of their sin. But God was not blind to their sin. And if you believe you can live in sin and presume that God does not care about your sin, the word is clear. He will bring judgment in his own time and according to his own purpose, ultimately in the coming of Christ Jesus. Elisha, though, interestingly, is also named as a minister of judgment. We're not told that he will use a sword, and of course he doesn't use a sword. It doesn't say the sword is mentioned for Hazael and the sword for Jehu. Elisha's sword is the sword of the word. His judgment comes from the word of God. I think it's significant again. His anointing is the only one that's explicitly mentioned. I wrote that verse number 19 and following. Elijah passes the mantle upon him, the anointing of Elisha. Don't forget the word of God comes as a minister of judgment from God. Hosea 6 tells us, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. It is the duty of a preacher to deliver the word of God in comfort and in judgment. I know we're not under this covenant, but Hebrews 10 again comes to mind. It is the duty of the minister of the word to bring words of reproof and rebuke. The self first, they've got to rebuke themselves. But it is the duty of the man of God to warn of backslidings and warn of apostasy. To warn those who turn away from God. The elders of a church are the overseers of the church. They are to watch over the church and in so doing they are to identify changes in behavior. In terms especially of the work and the worship of God. And when those changes are identified... It is the duty of the servants of God to bring words of warning to the people of God. And that's a solemn responsibility, being an overseer of God's flock. And so if in some future days I have to come alongside you and say, why the change? Why well, was like this once and now it's like this. Please do not take offense at that. See it as a mark of God's grace. The servant of the Lord must not strive. He must be patient. But if we are cold and careless in the work of God, we are on a, a pathway towards apostasy. And it's necessary for God to bring judgment in such an occasion. And so God does bring these words of judgment and also praise his name words of grace. You see, Elisha's appointment is not only that Elisha will come as a judge of the people's sin, but Elisha is also remarkable as a prophet of God's grace. In his miracles, he shows so much of the gospel. And God, in his kindness, will not leave his people without the word. Elijah will go, but Elisha will come in his place. And then you've got verse number 18. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal. And there is a strong argument that the verb that's used here in verse number 18, 
used kind of in the past present tense, I have left me, may well be properly translated in the future tense. I will leave me. The sense may be that as God has kept a remnant, so he will continue to keep a remnant. That God will always exercise his grace in his people at all times. That's what Romans 11 means. Remember Romans 11? God uses this very account to explain the truth that there's a remnant in the people of God. Verse 4 of chapter 11 of Romans, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men. Even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. We're encouraged here to see that God is faithful in keeping his covenant. In Elijah's day, all Israel was not off Israel. But yet within Israel, there were those who God sovereignly reserved to himself. What does that mean? He saved them. He changed their hearts and caused them to reject idolatry and to trust in the Lord. He kept a remnant. You know, we get discouraged by days of small things. We get downcast when there's not a great growth. And yet we, we see churches flourishing here and there, but we wonder, is this really the, the root of the matter? And we get discouraged in days of small things. And we say to ourselves, is God working? Well, surely God was working in keeping the remnant according to the election of grace. God's working there. I have reserved to myself. And God is at work in mighty ways in days of small things. And we must not doubt God in these days. And presume that God is not at work. He's preserving a remnant according to the election of grace. The question is, are we part of that remnant? You see, those in Israel who came to be part of that remnant, they were not the remnant simply because of their heritage and birthright. They were a remnant in the sovereign mercy of God. And God's promises to Abraham were kept in this provision of a remnant. Those who were not idolaters but trusted in Jehovah and in the coming Messiah. They looked forward as a remnant to Christ's coming. The Jews who believed in Christ looked back and said, Yes, Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. It is to this remnant that Gentiles are engrafted in Romans chapter 11. Gentiles are not engrafted into national Israel, but into the spiritual remnant of Israel. And so the question is, do we possess the same faith as the remnant? Are we the circumcision, Philippians chapter 3, who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh? That's the remnant. That's those who have been saved by God's grace. Do we have the faith of this remnant? Or are we those who trust in our heritage? Confidence in our own abilities? Rejoice in our works and not in Christ Jesus? 
worshiping form, but not in the spirit. Are you a child of God today? God has preserved his word. Grace is shown in the 7,000 that will not bow the knee to Baal. Let's all bow together, please, in prayer. Eternal God, we praise you again for your revelation of yourself in the Word. We see you, God, working at all times, working in judgment and in grace. We thank you, Lord, that in your kindness we are here as a people of God to worship and to praise your name, that you've saved us and we're engrafted into that one olive branch, the remnant in Israel, the spiritual seed of those who trust in Christ Jesus. Eternal God, help us to continue to walk in your ways and that we would not, O oh Lord, fall into backsliding pathways, falling away from our love for Christ Jesus. Revive us, O oh God, we pray. Stir our hearts unto righteousness and help us to worship thee in all of our ways. Thank you this time together. Pray you bless the food, prepare it for it, prepared for us. Thank you for your kindness in this. Help us eat and drink to your glory. And bring us back here in a short time to worship your name and to again consider your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.